and a little bit more. It's got the latest stories with video clips, all our news programs to listen to whenever you like. And now you can listen live to RTHK Radio 3 or Radio 1 with just a tap of the screen. It's really fast and sounds great. What it doesn't do is make the cool beeping sound. I know. You can adjust the layout of the app to make it look just the way you want. I've just moved Radio 3 and stuck it in between sports and finance. (laughs) It's the way I roll. The RTHK News app, available now from the App Store and Google Play, uh, but with no cool beeping sound. Yet. The Hong Kong 2016 Legislative Council elections are fast approaching. To make sure you can take part in Hong Kong's future, please make sure you are registered to vote. Hi, I'm Jason Ng. I'm a writer in Hong Kong. I'm here to remind you to update your contact information if you happen to have moved. To check to see if your registration particulars are up to date, please look for the online voter information inquiry system at voterregistration.gov.hk. Once again, that's voterregistration.gov.hk. An international station for an international city. This is Radio 3. Hello and welcome back to another episode of the BS for Bacon show with me, Jason Black. Last week, while I was traveling, I was thinking about all of the places I've lived up until now, and I've calculated that I've spent an entire third of my life in Hong Kong. That's a total of 15 years. Added to that, I spent almost a year each in France, the US and Australia. I've even spent close to a year in a Land Rover, traveling around Namibia, Botswana, and other parts of Southern Africa. Now, if you've ever owned a Land Rover, you'll know that's almost a year in hell. The rest of it has been in South Africa, so I thought for our sixth show, we should put in our Springbok jerseys, even though they didn't do so well last week, flip-flops and tight white shorts, and light the charcoal. I headed over there for some outdoor fun last week and chatted to a few interesting people. Also travelling on our show today is our wine expert, J.C. Viennes. He'll be chatting to us from Italy. And for our alphabet soup, I'm already up to the letter H. Today some are hot and some are not. Also, H is for horrible. And that's the most polite adjective I've come up with so far for today's gadget. Chef Christopher Kerr is giving that one a workout. And he'll also be sharing a recipe for a condiment for the barbecue. On barbecue, or as we say in South Africa, the braai, I've got a butcher talking about burrowos and biltong, a baker talking about pastis donata, and sticking with recipes from South Africa, I've even got one especially for Jim, who asked me to get a recipe for a Cape Malay boboti made with lamb. But before all of that out-of-Africa fun, let's head off to the big boot of wine and welcome back J.C. Viennes. Good morning, Jason. This week I'm sending you my voice from Italy. Yes, you heard me right. Last week I was in France, and this week I'm in the land of birth of my lovely wife, Maria. I'm here for a major event, uh, and this is a wine competition where I was invited as a judge. 
Uh, I say it's major because after 22 years of following a pattern, actually the international pattern of competitions, uh, they decided to break the mold and change uh, the way they organize and conduct the competition in a totally different way. And I was uh, honored to be invited uh, in this first edition, in this new uh, system of judging wines for Italy and also they hope uh, international uh, wines from uh, uh, everywhere around the world. So what's different about this competition? First of all, they have decided to scrap the medal system. In most competitions around the world, they will give a gold medal, silver medal, bronze medal and a mention, uh, honorable mention. And so competitions end up uh, with about 60 to 70 percent of all entries getting some form of medal or some form of recognition uh, which is a good way for marketing but frankly speaking it doesn't give a very uh, accurate uh, criterion and standard so this competition has decided to scrap the system and uh, uh, instructed the judges to award points on a 100 points scale uh, to all of the wines and then what they are doing is they are selecting only the wines with 90 points or above for a special mention in the uh, booklet uh, or by way of a sticker. So, in other words, all of the wines that have 90 points or more, some have 94, some have 98 actually, uh, they will issue a, ticket, uh, a sticker with uh, the number that they have succeeded to get from the judges. So what does that do? It makes the competition quite strong, quite strict, because uh, only a very few numbers of wine actually were awarded a recognition. This year, um, so far, only 14% of the entry were recognized as such. And so what they are hoping to do with this uh, standard is they are hoping that the suppliers will submit wines that are actually of very high quality. Because this is another major issue about wine competitions, many producers are very worried about sending their best wine. They're worried because the judges uh, may award them a low score when in fact this wine is recognized by international experts like Robert Parker or, or Ian Dagata uh, as being of a very high level. So the risk is actually to create a dissonance uh, in the market. But here in the competition in Italy, what they want to do is to make sure that the standards are so high that in the future the entries will be of very high quality. And then it, the, the, the competition, which by the way is called Five Star Wines, uh, will be recognized as a gold standard uh, for wine competition around the world. Just now, Jason, I mentioned to you that many uh, high-quality wine producers don't trust the competitions because they actually don't trust the judges. And this is the third thing that uh, this competition, Five Star Wines, have done, is that they have invited a panel of top experts from around the world. But really, they have selected these experts very, very carefully. Uh, most of them are masters of wine, most of them are journalists, winemakers, they are famous in their own right, in their own countries, and they have a thorough experience of tasting wine for quality. Not only participating 
in the circuit of wine competitions around the world, but these judges are actually focused on quality and they understand uh, what makes it uh, a good quality wine, a very good quality wine, an outstanding wine. And that is very important to give the competition a sense of credibility and build the trust with the various um, producers in Italy and around the world. JC will be back with more wine stories next week. I was chatting to Chef Christopher Kerr a few weeks ago while we were on the MTR heading to do the Friday morning brew show with Phil Whelan. We were laughing about the gadgets I'd found for the chefs to try, and he mentioned one that he thought would be worth reviewing. Now, if you want to enjoy corn off the cob, it's a pretty quick and easy process by using a knife. All you do is shave the kernels. Now, Chris mentioned that one of his chefs had bought a gadget that was supposed to be even better. So I thought we'd go to his kitchen at the Cullen Pistol in Sai Wan Ho to test it out. Hi, Jason. I'm here with uh, this funny-looking piece of equipment that one of my chefs brought. So the idea behind this tool, uh, like you said, is to remove the corn kernels from the cob. Now, it's... Uh, it's something that looks very similar to a computer mouse, um, a desktop mouse. It's got an, like an oval cover on top and it's flat on the bottom. And underneath it has a blade that has these teeth on it that are a little bit sharp with an opening into the, into the compartment at the top. And the idea is that you run it up and down the cob of the corn and it shaves off the kernels into the little holding pot at the top. And then it's got a, a slight hole at the back that you can shape the, the shaved kernels out. Um, and this was bought by one of my chefs in Cullen Pistol because we are shaving a lot of uh, corn that we torch and he thought it would be a time-saving piece of equipment and so far it's proved to be a time-wasting piece of equipment. So uh, we're going to give it a test out and see how it goes and, uh, and determine whether this is a suitable piece of equipment for a kitchen. easy <laughs> it's not an easy thing to use and it makes a, a good mess of the corn that's for sure maybe I got it the wrong way so it does it is it's just pulling the kernels off the corn but from what I can see there's half of the, half of the corn left on the on the cob and uh, it's it's definitely juicing the corn more than it's shaving it so I now have a handful of corn juice and uh, and a, a, a coop full of half-shaved um, corn kernels so it's not a not a bad piece of equipment but um, I would say for someone to spend some time and money patterning this design and and making it um, I'm gonna give it a score of maybe four out of ten yeah let's say it's uh, absolutely rubbish that was chef Christopher Kerr testing the world's corniest gadget We'll catch up with him in a bit for a sauce recipe that's perfect for the barbie. Keeping with my South African theme today, I decided to pull a book off of what I thought to be typical South African recipes. And to be honest, this one let me down. I do hate to say that, but hey, why have a South African chef doing a book of South African recipes to accompany a South African TV show of the chef's travels around Southern Africa and then include dishes like Tom Yum Gung Risotto, Arancini with Smoked Prawns, 
and even tempura oysters. For a small part of it, Cooked in Africa by Justin Bonello sadly shows a chef taking ingredients that are all of a sudden popular and then fusing them with something local to make it appear cool. For a book of South African dishes, it simply had too many risottos and pastas for my own taste, and I did ask myself who would ever want to make a burevos cannelloni. Certainly not a recipe that was handed down by either Italian or Afrikaans ancestors. That being said, and overlooking the addition of out-of-place ingredients, the book is fun, and the local recipes are interesting, especially the steam breads, chutneys, and cooksisters. The springbok poiki recipe with dumplings was a great addition, as was a really typical South African dish called a fet cook. And there's even a glossary of very typical South African terms, which I found pretty funny. It isn't an expensive book, and there are enough recipes in there to keep you entertained. So if you do want to try something different, something South African, and I don't mean Tom Yum Gung Risotto, get yourself a copy. I must admit what the book did do was get me thinking about the authenticity of a cuisine and how cuisines have evolved with the influences of other nationalities, be they by invasion or invitation. The cuisine of New Orleans, Australia and America are certainly a blend of those who've colonized them. But I'd say that the cuisines of, say, Asia are less influenced by Westerners, though there's no disputing that the French had an influence in Vietnam. Yesterday I was chatting with respected Vietnamese chef Peter Franklin, so I asked him to join us today to explore the idea a little further. Peter, what's your take on cuisines adopting the ingredients and styles of other countries? I think these things happen naturally over time, and uh, when it happens naturally, I think it works when it's forced uh, by someone who doesn't understand the, the cuisine, doesn't understand the ingredient, then uh, we have problems. Sure. I think there's some chefs around the world who are foreigners who've actually become authorities in the cuisines themselves. If you have a look at Rick Bayless, um, he's, you know, he's well known for uh, Mexican cuisine and, of course, David Thompson for Thai. How do you think that this happens? I think it begins with, uh, you know, Thai cuisine and, and Mexican, I think, are probably two of the best cuisines in the world. And, of course, they attract a lot of people, both local as well as international chefs. And uh, in the case of uh, Rick Bayless, you know, he loved Thai, um, Mexican cuisine and when he was five years old. So he actually went to Mexico, studied the cuisine, and understand probably the cuisine better than anyone else does. And do you think, um, uh, say, the Western palate has the ability to deliver an authentic experience? I think absolutely. It's, uh, you know, just there's no reason why I can't cook authentic French food, for example. I'm, I'm training French cooking. But I, I think you can, but I think there is something lost in the process. I would call that the, the translation process. You know, when someone who's not part of that culture attempting to cook that food from that cuisine. One of the interesting things that you mentioned yesterday was that when you are um, in the womb, you take on uh, the ingredients that your mom has eaten and, and your cuisine becomes part of your DNA. Obviously, if you move to another country, you can learn how to cook another cuisine. What would you say defines authenticity in a cuisine? Authenticity, I, I think people tend to see as a singular uh, authenticity. My my view of it is that there can be multiple authenticities. That different people can have different view, different experience of the, the cuisine, and uh, it can be different. Uh, so it doesn't have to be one uh, to start with. So I, I think a lot of people tend to say, okay, you know, they come in, 
let's say, you know, something that we produce at the restaurant of pho, which is like Vietnam's national dish, and uh, they'll come in and declare it's, it's not authentic because it's not like the pho that their grandmother made it. The grandmother could be coming from the Mekong Delta, who makes the pho very differently from someone, let's say, from Hanoi or Saigon, for example. So there are many variations, regional variations, to, to different issues at that level as well. I think there's something to be said for regional pride as well when, um, you know, you will have one town in Italy and another town in Italy. They will dispute who makes the original version of a particular dish and the French do it as well with the protection of their wines and cheeses and all of these sorts of things. Um, as I was saying um, a little earlier about the book, it seems to be so strange to me to have a Tom Yum Gung Risotto. The, the, the two cuisines are so very far apart, and yet uh, the cuisine that you know and know very well, Vietnamese, is, has managed to take French and Vietnam and blend it harmoniously. Yes. I, I think part of the reason why it works so well, I think the Vietnamese are very clever with actually adapting the ingredients and also the techniques uh, that they've learned and make it their own. For, for example, you look something like the... Another iconic dish, something like the banh mi sandwich, for example. The, the Vietnamese baguette is actually very different from the French baguette. It okay. looks similar, but it's actually much lighter, much airier, and they incorporate some rice into that, which uh, has, does two things. One, it makes the baguette lighter and more crispy. And uh, because of that, you can stuff all kinds of pork vegetables inside that makes the Vietnamese banh mi sandwich what it is. Whereas, you, you know, when you take a French baguette, it meant to be worked with just a maybe a slice of ham, a little bit of cheese, a little bit of mustard, not much inside. So, you know, they've changed the, actually the baguette to make it work for the Vietnamese sandwich. So there is that process of adaptation that happens. I think also what happens with cuisines is a lot of the time they're exported and being exported, they have to then appeal to a local population and there is adaptation of those cuisines to make it more acceptable to the local populations. As we were saying earlier on with Tom Yam Gong, for example, um, originally it didn't have coconut. When, you know, when do things like this come? And then is there a way of saying, well, it was right or wrong? Or is it because there's a need for the dish to evolve itself? Yes, uh, it's all that. <laughs> I think we evolve the need for the dish to evolve. And I, I think, you, you know, if you look at something like Tom Yam Gong, it's, it's extremely spicy. So what happens is when you add coconut cream to it, it reduces the spice and it gives it a richness, which makes it more palatable. And that way, actually, the dish can be spread to other places more easy because it's easier to eat. If you had to look at fusion cuisine, you would have to say then if people are going to do it, they have to have a very deep understanding of, of those individual cuisines and how the ingredients work together. Absolutely. I agree with you there. Thanks very much, Peter. Come back again and, um, yeah, let's talk a little bit more about Vietnamese cuisine. I look forward to it. Us South Africans love a braai. Hot coals, loads of dead animal waiting to be grilled, a few salads and a cast iron bath filled with beer makes for a great day with friends. A favourite sausage for the braai is the burvos. I'd say it's the South African national sausage and there are endless variations. Now, you know that if you ask three independent people for a recommendation and they all suggest the same butcher, you've hit carnivore gold. In reality, it's only when you get to chat to someone do you really understand how much goes into running a proper butchery with no shortcuts, no fullers and nothing but top quality produce. Last week, wanting to meet one of the country's best butchers, I woke up at 4.30 in the morning, got in a car 
and drove into the Midlands to speak to Robbie at his Maryvale butchery to ask him all about Boerevoors and another national favourite, Bultong. We make a couple of varieties here. Uh, the bell peppers and onion, very popular. Um, it just gives it a nice, fresh, different sort of taste. Um, but yeah, they do, they do all sorts of weird flavours. I reckon we probably make between half a ton and a ton a week, um, depending on the time of the year. Rugby season, <laughs> lots of lots of brying, lots of sport. Um, we tend to sell a bit more, a bit more burrowers. You know, when the sharks are playing, when the springboks are playing. Usually done on the bry. You can do it in the pan or in the oven, but 90% of the time people put it on the on, on the fire. It's quite important not to overcook it. It's still got to be a little bit pink on the inside. It, it keeps most of its juices and moisture when it's not uh, overcooked. Yeah. Biltong, also a very, very popular thing. Um, we probably sell upwards of a ton of biltong a week. Yeah, typically, uh, it's made from beef, but it can be made from venison as well. Um, we tend to use the top side or the silver side of the animal. Salt, pepper, vinegar. The vinegar acts as the preservative. And it's literally just put in a dry environment and it dries four or five days. Winter dries obviously better than summer with lower humidity. Yeah, very, very popular. And yeah. traditional spices, coriander, any other Co- ones? Yeah, coriander, salt, pepper, allspice. You know, there are lots of different recipes. Ours is a fairly sort of basic, traditional um, recipe, not too complicated. Yeah, people buy it like it's going out of fashion. Yeah. And dry horse? Dry horse is basically um, burr of horse put in a, in a thin casing and dried in the same way as, as biltong is done. Same sort of spices as burr of horse, but we tend not to put pork or lamb in it. Uh, it can get a little bit rancid. We use just beef or, or venison. I was asked to hunt down a great recipe for Baburti, the Cape Malay classic that is served all over South Africa. Coming from a restaurant family, I asked Brandon, a great chef who's worked with my brother for a number of years, for his own version. It's a dish introduced by the Dutch settlers that came to South Africa. The first recipe was recorded in a cookbook in 1609. So take your milk and your white bread soak it, then fry your onions until they get soft, add your spices like your curry powder, your cardamom, your fresh ginger, garlic, until they soften up, then add your mince to that. It's traditionally made with lamb mince and pork mince for the moisture. Now on the more recent recipes, they add beef mince to it. So we've added the onions, the spices, then we add the mince to it, start breaking it down, frying it until it's well cooked. Then we add the milk. We drain the bread and add the bread mixture to the mince mixture after it's cooked. Stir it up, add your sultanas, um, your South African dried fruits like your peaches, your apricots. So it's not so savory and it complements the curry spices that you've added to it. Then you take the milk mixture that's left over from soaking it and add it to eggs, uh, lightly beaten eggs to make a custard. Put it on top of the mince mix that you've just made, bay leaves and almonds, and then bake in the oven until set. 
So there you have it, a classic babooti recipe from Brandon at Bellevue Cafe. For today's alphabet soup, I'm getting my ladle into the letter H. Starting with the hot as hell habanero, a.k.a. the Scotch bonnet pepper. Registering up to a massive 600,000 units on the Schofield scale, it's 60 times stronger than a jalapeno and was, until recently, the hottest chili in the world. A lot less hot is the H for haggis, a boil-in-the-bag mix of sheep, offal and oats. For all of those lovers of vacuum bag cooking, the haggis predates sous vide techniques using the stomach of the sheep to cook the mixture before serving it all up with neeps and tatties. H is also for hoggit, the name of a little lamb aged just one at that perfectly tender age for eating. We'll finish on two classic H's. One is Herbes de Provence, a mix of thyme, savory, rosemary and tarragon. A great seasoning mix for vegetables and other dishes. And last in our soup today is H for Hollandaise. A classic emulsion of egg yolks, clarified butter and a little bit of vinegar that works beautifully with asparagus and eggs. Let's head back to the Cullen Pistol and our chef Christopher Kerr for a great recipe for a barbecue. going to do a recipe today for uh, for a nice glaze that also too can double up as a dip like a meat dipping sauce after it's cooked so the recipe is called spicy bourbon and maple glaze or maple dip um, so we have in the recipe there's 400 grams of brown sugar two teaspoons of ginger powder one teaspoon of cayenne pepper 120 mils of white wine vinegar 80 mils of bourbon whiskey, your favourite one, um, half a teaspoon of kosher salt, four tablespoons of apple cider vinegar, four tablespoons of maple syrup, two tablespoons of caster sugar, 80 mils of maple syrup, 180 mils of ketchup, half a teaspoon of vanilla extract. And it's a pretty straightforward recipe to make. It all goes into the pot and simmers until it reduces and thickens. And then you can use this on on any kind of meat that you put on the barbecue um, as it's cooking you can brush it on the meat to glaze or after the meat's finished cooking and it's all cut up ready to go you can use it as a dipping sauce or just a dressing that you put over the top of the meat it's very versatile and a lot of this sauce um, a lot of the uses for this sauce can be done depending on the consistency of it how much it's simmered on the stove and reduced thanks for that chris Normally after a barbecue in South Africa, just like Macau and its Portuguese heritage, it ends on a sweet favourite called the pastis donata. I chatted to a great South African pastry chef, Dwayne, about his version. Uh, typical ingredients in that is, is your, your puff pastry, which is used for your base in that, and then the custard, which is quite an egg custard base, uh, which helps with the baking. Um, and not really much sugar, but... Mainly your eggs and that. Secret to cooking at low heat. Uh, low heat, rather cook it on a low heat for a longer period than overheat because then otherwise your custard starts curdling inside and your egg actually starts cooking more than the custard. And how do you caramelize the top? Well, the way that we used to caramelize the top and that was with apricot jam. Um, sugar tends to get too hard and then it doesn't cook right through. Uh, so we normally use apricot jam for that extra sweetness. 
my recipe includes uh, one whole egg, two egg yolks, 115 grams of caster sugar, two tablespoons of corn flour, uh, full cream milk instead of low-fat milk, uh, vanilla, uh, two tablespoons of vanilla extract, and then a puff pastry roll. Thanks for that, Dwayne. Pastis Donata brings us to the end of today's show and leaves you enough time to plan a barbecue for this afternoon. I'm Jason Black, and I'll be back next Saturday with more Alphabet Soup, another book review, some recipes, and, of course, a tale or two about wine. Join me then, and have a great weekend. Bye for now. And, of course, you can join Chef Jason Black next week at the same time for another Bees for Bacon show. You can find all of today's recipes on his Facebook page, which is B is for Bacon on RTHK3. The program is produced by Phil Whelan. Employers and employees should make prior work arrangements for typhoons and rainstorms. Rules on reporting to work, staggered release and returning to work should be covered. Employers should also be flexible to employees who have practical difficulties in resuming work. Make prior work arrangements for typhoons and rainstorms. Labour Department Hotline 2717-1771 Would your loved one go through hell for you? Or is he giving you hell? Is your buddy covering your back? Or is he stabbing you in the back? Do you have die-hard friends? Or would they stand by and watch you die? There's a fine line between good friends and bad friends. You don't have to prove your friendship or love by taking drugs. Stand firm. Knock drugs out. Call the anti-drug hotline on 186-186. Cloudy, a few showers, a foggy start to this day for sure. Sunny intervals later, hopefully. Up to around 26 degrees, I expect at maximum. Moderate south-to-south easterly winds. 24, humidity 95 percent.